What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Tell my people my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again i appreciate you asking me back so you said you were going to pinch yourself i didn't know it was that kind of show now i mean if you guys are in the privacy of your own home if you want to do these things good how you doing chad hey johnny cool man what's going on we're ready to go or what uh, uh, hey man what's up guys this is homicide oh that's my homie homicide with a big homie club yeah that would be it hey this is david penzer and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now... They bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. two-man power trip of wrestling and you are listening to episode number 311 of the two-man power trip of wrestling podcast brought to you today empowered by our appearance at legends of the ring this coming saturday in monroe new jersey join the two-man power trip of wrestling and a host of extreme originals and the devil himself as we gather in monroe new jersey for a meet and greet day filled with autographs pictures and so many great conversations about the good old days of ECW and the history of professional wrestling. And it's all going down in New Jersey at the Ramada Inn, formerly known as the Holiday Inn in Monroe. Please head over to our Facebook page to get all the information on the meet and greets with the franchise Shane Douglas, Just Incredible, Jerry Lynn, The Sandman, and Kevin Sullivan. Again, it's going down this coming Saturday, the 21st of October in Monroe, New Jersey. Head to our Facebook page right now to get all the information. And if you didn't know by now, my name is Chad. And as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz. And John, today we are in for a treat as we welcome in a pro wrestling journalist extraordinaire. He's obviously a well-known professional wrestling personality when it comes to the broadcasting side of things, the journalistic side of things, as pro wrestling Hall of Fame journalist Wade Keller joins today's program and we've had on a lot of journalists in the past we've had on dave Meltzer, we've had on mike johnson we've had on ryan satin but we have missed wade keller and it took a little bit to get it all synced up but he is here to join us today to talk about 
Among other things, his fantastic podcast, the Wade Keller Pro Wrestling Podcast on Podcast One, that is a daily breakdown on the world of professional wrestling, covered by a guy who's got 30 years under his belt with the Pro Wrestling Torch, a publication that he created and, of course, owns and operates, and has such an amazing collection of articles and stories dating back for 30 years that he has covered this professional wrestling business. And by listening to today's episode, you get your chance to get in on a little PW Torch VIP as Wade Keller opens up to our listeners the opportunity to go VIP with PW Torch for one month for one whole dollar. That's right. One dollar gets you the opportunity to access the PW Torch VIP archives as well as all of the audio and all the premium content that's on the pwtorch.com website by entering the code POWERTRIP into the checkout box. That's right. The code POWERTRIP in the checkout box on PW Torch will get you one month of VIP services for one dollar. So after that month, it gets on to you then to continue that. But he's going to give you the introductory price of $1 to use the code POWERTRIP from our show to get you onto the PW Torch website. So what do we talk about outside of what's going on in the world today? We also talk about the history of Wade Keller in professional wrestling, how he got the newsletter started, how the torch has evolved, and all the ways wrestling media has evolved over the years, but it's a great conversation, John, as I welcome you in here. Why don't you tell us a little bit more of what we have to look forward to in this chat with Wade Keller, as well as you give us some of your highlights from this interview with a pro wrestling hall of fame journalist, Wade Keller. Yes, Chad, back at it again, the two man power trip and back with a vengeance. And this time with a guest that has surprisingly not been on our show before. He is the legendary pro wrestling journalist. He is a pro wrestling hall of famer for his journalism efforts. Of course, talking about Wade Keller, who created the PW Torch newsletter back in 1987. So 30 years ago. Wow, time has really, really flown, I'll tell you that much right now. And it's crazy to think of what wrestling has become and where we've gone with wrestling and how we get our news and how it's kind of distributed out there. Because not only, you know, you have the newsletter from the PW Torch, you got an app from the PW Torch, now you got the Wade Keller Pro Wrestling Podcast over on Podcast One, which was dominating the charts. I believe it's still very, very highly ranked. I know at one point it was ranked number one in the uh, sports section and obviously for all wrestling podcasts, which is pretty amazing considering all the top pod, you know, wrestling podcasts that are out there, especially, you know, the Bruce Pritchards, the Jim Rosses of the world. So, I mean, it's pretty amazing to be kind of uh, thrown near the top of that list, let alone be sitting at the top looking down at the rest. So pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing that he's been able to cover wrestling for 30 years and, and just been able to cover it so well. And obviously, you know, it's well documented that there's another wrestling source that we've interviewed before and we always talk about on the show. That's Dave Meltzer. So naturally, we do talk about his relationship with Dave Meltzer, friendship maybe, uh, so on and so forth, things like that. But besides that, we also get into his relationship and friendship with Stone Cold Steve Austin which is quite a unique friendship and quite a unique pairing because those two have been very friendly. And obviously, as you can tell, Austin has him on his podcast. Wade Keller always has him as uh, Steve Austin on the PW Torch. So it, it's pretty amazing. And you think about it, and, and for me, asking the question, I was like, is it surreal at all that 
Stone Cold Steve Austin, one of the top draws in wrestling history, was basically asking you questions and, and asking your opinion, what you think on the business. So that's how highly of an opinion and how highly of respected of a journalist Wade Keller is in the pro wrestling industry, that you got one of the top guys of all time, and he's really, really respecting and appreciating an opinion from Wade Keller, which obviously is it does go a long way, and it just shows you the amount of work that this guy has put in over the last 30 years. We also, in this interview, talk about current wrestling. We talk about Roman Reigns. We talk about John Cena. talk about the Daniel Bryan situation and everything in between. Of course, my favorite part of the interview possibly is talking about his time as a fan. He talks about the first match he ever went to. Vern Gagne versus Nick Bockwinkel was the main event. We also talk about Ric Flair versus Kerry Von Erich, which was another one of his favorite matches growing up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a real treat here. A nice long conversation with a, a wrestling legend. He is a wrestling journalism legend, of course. So like I just said, sit back, relax, enjoy a little bit of Wade. Wade. Keller. I like that this episode goes back and forth from actually being an interview to almost like a picking your brain session as somebody like Wade Keller, who's just talked about wrestling for so many years and has such a great insight into the business. It almost uh, comes into some kind of a dissection uh, at some points, but it was an unbelievable chat. And definitely we'll have Wade Keller back in the future. I mean, we didn't even scratch the surface with talking about different historical topics. We talked a lot about what's going on in today's wrestling business. And it's a rare opportunity for John and I to actually do that. So, hey, when we got that chance, we'll take advantage of it. But uh, you know this show. You know how we go. And unless we're talking with somebody who's uh, physically involved in the day-to-day operations of also talking about professional wrestling on a daily basis... We usually let the uh, the new stuff kind of simmer before we get to it, but this was a lot of fun with Wade Keller. And again, like I said a few minutes ago, head over to PWTorch.com, sign up for the VIP membership, use our special promo code POWERTRIP to get your first month for only a dollar. So then you can check out the tiers that he has in terms of his pricing. But for your first month, if you use the code POWERTRIP, you will get it for $1. And folks, I have gone VIP in the past. It is well worth it. If you feel like looking up an article from 1988 or 1989 and you want to learn more about what was going on during the Mega Powers split up or the lead up to SummerSlam 89, head to the PWTorch.com and you'll get all the information that you need from Wade Keller and, of course, his staff of great writers and podcasters and everybody that he's got going on over there. And I'm going to give a little bit of a shout-out as well to PWPodcast.com. They post our weekly uh, wrap-ups. We post our, our we send our quotes out. They post them on their site. I apologize to Wade before we got on the air for inundating him for a while with our quotes, but now... They head on over to pwpodcast.com. Check out all the podcast recaps that they have on there. It's a pretty cool site. I've seen some before, but this one definitely uh, is a very well-documented source now with the PW Torch behind it. And I want to give a little bit of a shout-out to them. And uh, keep your eyes on PW Podcast. And if you want to catch recaps of our show as well as all the other big ones, 
is on there. Check it out today. So, John, with all that being said, before we get to the two-man power trip of wrestling business, we want to remind you that this coming Saturday in Monroe, New Jersey, at Legends of the Ring, we will be joined by an extreme carnage crew, if you will, just incredible, Shane Douglas, the Sandman, a rare appearance by Jerry Lynn and Kevin Sullivan, all hanging out with the two-man power trip all day in Monroe, New Jersey at Legends of the Ring. Head over to our Facebook page for more guest information, times, prices, photo opportunities, all that good stuff is sitting there waiting for you at our Facebook page. So get on over there right now and check out the Legends of the Ring information. So now, John, please hit us with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business and get it on over to Wade Keller. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno Sammartino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rose, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs. The phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Buff Bagwell, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. And if you're on Android, please check us out on Google Play or Player FM. Follow along with a two-man power trip in 2017 as we come to a town near you. TMPT hits the road. October 21st, we hit the Legends of the Ring in New Jersey. November 4th, we hit the big event in New York City. And the big one, the granddaddy of them all, the big guy, Wrestlecade in North Carolina on 11:25 with Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard. There will be a Four Horsemen reunion for sure. So follow along with the two-man power trip as you never know where we may land. And now, without any further ado, he is the owner and creator of the PW Torch. He is the number one ranked podcast host over at Podcast One. He is a pro wrestling Hall of Fame journalist. He is Wade Keller. Please enjoy. Wrestling is sanctioned by the AWA, the American Wrestling Association. All-Star Wrestling presents the top professional wrestlers from the United States, Canada, England, Germany, Australia, Mexico, Poland, Japan, the greatest professional wrestlers from throughout the world. And now to the ring for All-Star Action. 
Well, joining us on the line tonight is the owner and creator of the Pro Wrestling Torch. He's a number one ranked podcast host with his podcast on Podcast One, the Wade Keller Pro Wrestling Podcast. He's a pro wrestling Hall of Fame journalist. He is the one and only Wade Keller. Thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. Glad to be here. Appreciate the introduction. Wow. Uh, Wade, absolutely. We're such you know, long-time fans of yours, going all the way back. You know, We feel like it's the dark ages now, having to go back to read newsletters and the early incarnation of the Internet where there wasn't a lot of information and trying to seek out stuff. And Wade Keller's name always kind of rises to the top. So, as John and I being very long-time fans, it's an honor to speak with you. Excellent. I appreciate the invite to be on the show. Looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you. one thing I love about you, and I've been a VIP subscriber in the past and getting my hands on newsletters and just always trying to gain more information, the one thing I love about you is you've always found a way to keep on, you know, staying on top of everything in professional wrestling. And with this Podcast One show that you have now, you've taken the mold that you built with the PW Tour, uh, with your whole podcast empire and brought it over to Podcast One, how has that transition been for you, and how rigorous is it to put in a five-day-a-week pro wrestling podcast? Well, I've been doing four podcasts a week for about a year that were free, and I've been doing about, I don't know, eight to 12 podcasts per week for VIP members, which I still do um, for, since, like, I don't know, for eight years I've been doing the Wade Keller Hotline for VIP members every day. But the post-production work, for the Podcast One shows has, has been uh, more work than past shows, just because, um, I don't know, just the nature of, of how I do them and the equipment I use now. Uh, so it's, it's added work, but from a scheduling standpoint, it's actually given me a little bit more flexibility because when I did the other shows, um, I would go live right after Raw went off the air, right after SmackDown went off the air, and we had set times when we took live calls for the other two shows, and now everything is pre-recorded. So I have a little bit more flexibility, so that's kind of nice. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's—I I mean, I—I I literally do like thirteen to fifteen podcasts per week that I'm part of. Uh, so it does sort of feel like my my existence is—is is, you know, my waking hours are mostly spent talking about wrestling uh, with the recorder on. No complaints though. <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely. I was going to say that's uh, that's definitely what we would like to call the quote dream job, uh, to, <laughs> right. to say the least. But you know, you paved your own way, my friend. You know, you've been doing it for a long time, and you definitely uh, have become one of the more established names that we turn to for our pro wrestling journalism. And we know when we see your name next to it that it's obviously going to have more credibility and it's going to have a little bit more weight behind it because we've come to know what you are doing here in wrestling and you are always being consistent and giving us great information. But what I love about you, and I've, I've said this about Dave Meltzer too in the past, I give you guys so much credit for still being able to keep up with the product. And I only say that because I, I might be more of a cynical old school fan I just can't follow it like I used to, so I have to give you credit where credit's due to follow it the way that you do. What keeps that passion still burning for professional wrestling? Well, I mean, I was a wrestling fan, you know, from age eight or nine, and I haven't stopped being a fan of wrestling, so, so it helps, you know, obviously being a fan of what you cover. Um, and I haven't figured it out yet. 
You know, like I I feel like pro wrestling is is it's changing and evolving on a you know constant basis, and the promote you know, promoters and wrestlers are always struggling to figure out how to use adjust to the latest technology, adjust to the latest uh, trends in pop culture, adjust to uh, the latest talent that's available to them and the whims of the fans and the co- competition. And I, I just I find it thoroughly challenging the way the lens through which I cover wrestling. It never ceases to be interesting for me to try to figure out what's working and why, and what's not working and why, and how are fans responding. So I mean, I just think it's and there's fascinating people to cover. You know, I mean, this is not these are eccentric people who run wrestling and wrestle. So all of that plus it's it's a it's a job that hasn't stayed the same. You know, in the late 80s when I started, it was just purely the print newsletter. Then I did radio. Then I did 900 numbers. Uh, then I uh, did some. Uh, then I launched the website, and then I did some podcasting, and then I was big into the apps during kind of an app boom period with the launch of smartphones. So like, there's always, and now podcasting has just like you know really taken over. Um, so there's always kind of something new, and uh, there's always a new challenge to kind of keep things fresh. It's not the same thing. I mean, there's times where the the hours get long, um, and you know having like three days off where I could in a row not think about wrestling would probably be healthy for me mentally, but it doesn't really happen, so I've come to accept that. <laughs> I can see that with the amount of stuff that, uh, like you said before, you put in content-wise. But what you really did with recreating your, your network there and adding different shows and adding hosts and adding different content is you really brought all the supporters and all the people that follow your work all under one umbrella and gave them – different things. So obviously when you first set out doing the newsletter, you didn't think it would evolve to that, you know, 20, 25 years later. But I remember you from back in the New York days, back when we had the overnight wrestling hour with uh, Jody McDonald and Rich Mancuso that I'd have my uncle giving me updates as to what was going on in the business through news that Rich Mancuso would get from you, you know, kind of sharing it. And to think where we've come since 19... 87, 88, 89, 90, 91, the scandals, all the crazy stuff that brought wrestling into, you know, the, the mainstream spotlight. Has the podcast now become where we're going for our mainstream wrestling coverage? Is it, just, is it even leaving the actual Internet and just going straight to the podcast route now? I don't think so. Um, I mean, podcasts are wonderful because you, you, you can say so much with, in, with inflection uh, and long-form interviews where you don't have to spend eight hours afterwards transcribing every word in order for people to, to know what was said. Uh, but, I mean, podcasting has been around, at, you know, in some form or fashion since, you know, mid-2000s. And it's certainly growing now, and, there, and there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people trying to figure out how to monetize it. And there's a lot of big names who now find it worth their time to podcast, and that's raised the awareness of them. And then the technology is there. The, the uh, Wi-Fi is more reliable in and, and, and more places. Obviously, the self-coverage and, and the data available is more plentiful, so people can stream or download shows without worrying about overages like they probably were just five years ago. That was a concern. And smartphones, there's great apps to, to listen to podcasts. So I just think it's become – easy and affordable and available everywhere, so it's huge. But there's still people still want to read when they can't listen to podcasts or 
Some people want to read while they listen to music. Some people want to um, would rather read a report on Raw than listen to someone talk about it, so they can kind of skip around and skim and reread. I mean, I just think the mediums are different. Radio and newspapers and magazines all survive side by side for a century. So I think that podcasts won't replace websites um, this, the way that I think online reading has taken a, a big dent out of print uh, postal delivery publications. Yeah, hey, you know, my daughter brought home a fundraiser, and it had a magazine uh, option. And I said, who the heck is actually still buying the magazine option? And lo and behold, like an idiot, of course, people buy the magazine option, and I look like I've got egg on my face. But Mm -hmm. besides all that, you know, one other thing about podcasts that I've found really fascinating is the fact that now we have all the wrestlers that are getting involved in it. And like you said, guys are now coming out to talk about it, whereas maybe 10 years ago when podcasting was still – in its infancy, you had a couple guys that would pop up here and there doing a show, but now, I mean, we see it with the guests that we have on. It seems like if they're a good personality and they're a great talker in the wrestling business, there's going to be somebody out there that's going to grasp onto them and think that they're going to have a good outlet for a podcast. I mean, case in point, we do one with Shane Douglas, so we know he's a great talker. He needs that platform. Did you ever think that with a business that was so protected in 1987, wrestlers would be willing to get on the air and talk about the inside of the business and kind of revealing some of the things that they never would back in in the late 80s? I can't say that I obviously forecast anything to this level. But, I mean, being involved in radio and there were ex-athletes in sports radio who would get involved in doing a radio show. So, in a way, it makes sense that the issue that kept pro wrestling from getting a lot of, or pro wrestlers from having a platform is just there wasn't really a, a, an established place in radio for ex-wrestlers to have an outlet to talk about wrestling because generally sports radio is. It's either national and they cover mainly the A topics, you know, the top NFL teams, the top, you know, they cover the World Series, college football, or you had the local teams and you would have local sports teams and there might be ex-athletes who would get jobs in radio, but they would cover the local sports team. There wasn't really a place in radio for pro wrestling. It, it wasn't a sport. It sort of fell in between the sports page and the variety page in newspapers. So there, it just, and there wasn't really a way to monetize it, and a wrestler would have to go to a radio station to do a show, and they weren't going to do daily shows. It was going to be you know, probably a weekend show. So I, I think what's happened with podcasting is – it's just this confluence of convenience and, uh, like I say, now there's some, you know, there's some monetization of it to maybe make it worth uh, more people's time to, to get involved. And so it, it is more a technology thing, but I don't think it was foreseeable because I, I have to admit, in the 90s, I did not foresee the iPhone. I did not foresee uh, carrying around essentially these on-demand radio stations in your pocket with headphones. I mean, it just, it's, the technology is astounding. I mean, when we think about just where we've gone in the last 12 years. So I didn't see it coming, but once it started happening, it made sense that it would continue to happen. And because wrestlers have written books, very open about the business, and for 30 years I've been interviewing wrestlers who have been very open about the business, it makes sense that wrestlers would feel comfortable talking openly about the business the way that they do now. So, I mean, looking at it now, it doesn't surprise me, but I, I think that the, the confluence of technology 
is not something that I that I that I specifically predicted. But I'm not, you know, once Colt Cabana and Eckrod Van Dam on Block Talk Radio was a pioneer in that regard. Um, they did it, and then Steve Austin was kind of one of the tent poles of the Podcast One Network, and Jim Ross and Chris Jericho and their success. It just stands to reason that it would expand and grow. So, yeah, I mean, it's cool. It's, it's, I, I, I would have gone completely bonkers as a kid if I had this kind of access to information about pro wrestling. And, and I keep that in mind in everything that I do. You know, what would I have wanted as a, a 10 or 15 or 20-year-old uh, as a wrestling fan um, or if, I, if it wasn't my job, what I want is a 30- or 40-year-old. Um, and that's, you know, that's what I don't forget that, and that's what I try to produce. That's a great couple of great damn points there, especially about the, uh, you know, the, the, the pro athlete being in the booth and being the color guy or the play-by-play guy or being a co-host on a radio show. That is, that's a great point, and i, I got to tell you, it's something that I didn't really think about when, uh, you know, when I was asking it because when I think about those ex-athletes, you see a smattering of the level of where they were at. Not to discount anybody's skills or anybody's spot in, in their profession, but when I think about the wrestlers that had shows, you said like Rob Van Dam had it or Cole Cabana had it or even the Honky Talk Man at one point had a, uh, had a, had a radio show on uh, Blog Talk Radio as well. But when it was Steve Austin seeing him jump into it, that was the first one where I'm thinking, wow, a guy like Steve Austin, who's now going to get on the air, talk about stories, talk about matches, interview guys, very intriguing. But when Ric Flair got into the podcast game, I think that kind of blew my mind because now it's like, it's talking like giving uh, you know, Babe Ruth uh, a microphone and having him sit down and do the first ever uh, baseball broadcast. It's just one of those things you never thought would happen. But to, to kind of dial back to Steve Austin, you know, your relationship with him, I mean, it, to hear you guys talk, it's it's very cool. It's always like listening to, uh, in on a conversation between great friends. How has that relationship with Steve Austin just evolved to what it is now? And obviously you two are now uh, uh, together on the Podcast One Network. It was funny. Before there was a term, uh, Paul Heyman guy, Paul Heyman, and this was years ago, said to me on the phone, um, Wade, you're a Steve Austin guy. Like and it was kind of funny and I kind of like, um, just was like I hadn't heard it put that way before. But like, Steve and I just had a good have had a good chemistry for a long time and and we've just hit it off in terms of our our wrestling philosophy and 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 seeing kind of seeing some of the same strengths and some of the same weaknesses and different promoting philosophies. And I mean we talked on the phone in the '90s and I knew him before. You know, part of it is I knew him before he was a big star. You know, I mean I. I remember having a phone conversation when he, when he was in ECW, and he was trying to decide whether he should go to All Japan or WWF, um, you know, and, and where would he have a better chance, what fit him better. And, and so I guess part of our connection is just having, having a relationship that goes back to before he was a star and, and before he was making great money. Um, but, yeah, when he got his podcast and invited me on, I think I was – I, I don't know. I can't remember this for sure. Maybe I'm remembering wrong, but I think I was like his second or third guest. And it was when he first started the podcast. And I just thought that was an incredible uh, chance to, to have him interview me instead of vice versa, which was really cool. Um, and, yeah, the opportunity to do a, a bunch of weekly spots leading up to the launch of my show was, was a great promotional opportunity to get me out of the gate. Um, and when Steve is watching wrestling – uh, and, you know, he goes through phases where he's watching a lot, not watching a lot, but when he's into watching a lot, and then he has me on more often, 
I, it, those are just such, a, such great conversations. I mean, I learned so much talking to him, and it's obviously gratifying that he respects my opinion. Um, does, you know, we don't always agree with each other, but we respect what, he, what each of us has to say about things and want to hear about it. And there are times we just, in recent years especially, have just talked for on the phone, off record, about watching something, and we were like, we should have recorded that. That should have been a podcast. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's been cool. I mean, I just I know Steve as Steve, not as Stone Cold. Um, and I think that he, li- I think that probably people like him, and I can only imagine this, but I think people like him probably like the idea that there's somebody who knows them for who they are and isn't just starstruck by, uh, by being around them. Is it surreal though at all that, you know, arguably he's one of the biggest stars of all time, if not the biggest, is it surreal at all that almost, you know, the, the ball is kind of switched they switch courts and basically, you know, he's interviewing you. Is that surreal at all to you? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, for sure. Yeah. I mean, when, when, I mean, anytime Steve Austin asks me a question and wants my opinion, I mean, obviously that's pretty damn cool considering what he's accomplished, where he's been and how much I respect his knowledge. It's probably, a, again, it's probably a little less so just in the sense that I've, I talk, I've, I mean, I've just, I've talked to a lot of wrestlers over the decades before they were stars and then before they became big time. And Steve is one of them. And so the connection is sort of like that. I still see myself talking to that person uh, when I talk to him more than if, you know, it's like if president Obama called me now as an ex president and started asking me questions about the economy, if there was my area of specialty, asked me about the economy or something about world affairs, that would be different than if I like knew him in college. So, in that sense, the, the, it's it's less, aw, I'm less awestruck by the, by the notion. But I mean, there's no question with what he's accomplished and what he's proven in the industry um, that yeah, being able to have a dynamic where he treats me as somebody that whose opinion matters and his, whose analysis he wants to put out there to his audience that he's cultivating is is an honor, and I, I absolutely respect that. Back in 95 and 96, did you tell him to go to All Japan, or did you kind of say, hey, you probably should head to the WWF with Vince? That's a hell of a question. Um, as I said that, I was trying to remember uh, what I recommended. I, I'm tempted to say that I was pessimistic about Vince McMahon using him well, and I might have suggested All Japan. But, but I'm, I think if that's <laughs> true, I want to revise history, because it was, in retrospect, <laughs> terrible advice. Yeah, let's pretend that you said, oh, yeah, WWF. Yeah, I, I, I know I gave pros and cons. I, I do think I recommended to Samoa Joe, because I had a similar conversation to Samoa Joe. I, I'm pretty sure I recommended he go to TNA and not WWE. And that was, and, and that was at a time when I think, I think in retrospect at that moment it was probably the right thing, and it might even have been the right thing in the long run, um, depending on how things go now in this kind of final cha- likely the final chapter of his career where he makes the most money. Because um, I'm not sure back then that they would have treated him the way that uh, it's because it it was only the, the 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 circumstances that led to his his uh, contemporary CM Punk getting a push was 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 in almost an accident of history. I mean, it, it was uh, Kurt Angle leaving and the ECW brand needing a top star and Big Show not being a good fit and uh, Paul Heyman having control and hitting it off with Punk and seeing something in him and then pushing Punk, and then when ECW went over, Punk had established himself enough, and 
WWE at that moment was willing to take a chance on somebody based on you know the depth of, of the roster that they had. And so, and, and but the, the the thought was Punk would struggle in developmental for a long time and maybe not make the main roster. And I worried about that with Joe with his body type that that would happen. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it does. There's not a lot of like fork in the road moments that I remember where wrestlers asked me their opinion. But I'm I'm pretty sure with Joe that I that I thought TNA would offer better guaranteed money and give him more of a push and would be a better landing place for his skill set. Um, so I have that. To, I, I, think I, I think that's probably a good thing. But diff- different people would think, nah, he should have gone in developmental and maybe he would have made the money that Punk did and he'd be retired by now. But if you think about when Joe did make that jump to TNA, he was working less dates. He supposedly got a pretty good financial deal from them. He did get a huge push. Um, Him and Angle, I feel like uh, initially, Joe going there was definitely a smart move. Knowing the history and knowing what we knew at that moment, it made sense for Joe to make the decision that he made. And I think in retrospect it was the right decision. You don't know ever for sure. But I I don't have faith that he would have been given a fair chance at that time by Vince McMahon. No, uh, definitely not. But as far as, you know, some of the guys with Vince pushes or, or doesn't push, do you ever kind of get a feel, in, you know, in your position and kind of knowing what you know and obviously knowing a lot of the backstage things, do you ever get a feeling of who he's going to push or who he's going to de-push? Like Reigns, did you see that coming from a mile away? I think so. Um, I mean, and, and it's understandable, you know, I mean, Reigns looks amazing for what, for what you want in a top guy. I mean, I think he's got one of the best looks of anybody who's been, I think he's got a better look than, I mean, not, maybe not than Hulk Hogan. I mean, although he's got the full head of hair, um, you know, Hulk had a, a, just an amazing look, but he's got the height. He's got, um, a, a good build and he's, you know, he's handsome. I mean, the women's swoon. So, I, I mean, I think if he had any kind of competence in the ring or on the mic, he was likely due for a, a big push. And I think if you look at my writing or listen to my podcasting during the Shield days, I mean, the idea was, is you know, is Reigns going to be another big guy who doesn't make it? There's a lot. There's a whole line of people who had a good look and, a, and good size, but they just weren't good enough. They didn't have the aptitude. Or is he going to be something more than that? And early on in the Shield, he was green, and Dean and Seth were carrying him. So I don't think you could predict that he'd be as successfully pushed as he has been. Um, obviously, there's some issues with it, with the crowd reaction. But I, I'm not at all surprised that, that coming out of the Shield, and I mean, we heard early on, you know, Vince, as CM Punk has said, you know, Vince was telling people, make Roman look good, make Roman look good. We want to give this guy a chance to be the next big thing. Now, with the shield kind of reuniting, it kind of feels a little of an odd re- reuniting. It's just the timing-wise of it at, like, a secondary pay-per-view. Have you felt like the reuniting of the shield has been done well? I do. I've been okay with it. I think it's been I, – I would say I wish they probably stretched it out two or three extra weeks. It felt a little rushed. Um, but the aspect of it that's rushed doesn't disqualify it to me from from being – well done. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, there's little quibbles. Like, I, I just going right to a three-on-four match with a mix-and-match team that just got thrown together with Sheamus and Cesaro and Braun Strowman and Miz. I'd have rather had an established heel threesome that Vince McMahon had planned for three months to build up as credible. Like, I wish that 
Miz was aligned with Cesaro and Sheamus sooner, or Miz had aligned with Braun Strowman longer. Uh, I think the Shield deserved to have a a Freebirds to their Von Erichs in a way, and they didn't get that. So I think that's a little unfortunate. But, yeah, I, I think, it's, I think it's, it's good timing. I mean, everything they're doing right now is primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to get Roman Reigns over. And the feeling is reuniting the Shield will help get Roman over and bridge, be, bridge WWE and Roman between now and, and uh, when he beats Brock Lesnar at WrestleMania next year. Now, is that pretty much set in stone, you think, that, that there's no changing that? It's definitely Lesnar against Reigns for the uh, title next year WrestleMania? I, I think it's as set in stone as anything is in wrestling. I mean, there could be an injury. Um, there could be a scandal. There could be something that pops up that nobody saw coming that just turns out to be better for business. Um, but I doubt it. I mean, I think that's I – think, I, think, I think Vince McMahon has a map – and that is the end point. But I think he's not 100% sure on which route he's going to take to get there. But I think he has a pretty good idea um, of how he's going to get there. Now, were you aware all along, you know, not, not you know, go through like leaks and stuff like that, but were you aware of this main event or were you just thinking common sense-wise, booking-wise? That's uh, I think I've – I mean, I've heard – that the plan was for Brock Reigns for quite a while. I mean, I don't – I think once Reigns beat Undertaker, um, it might have preceded WrestleMania this year that there was talk of that kind of pattern. Once it was Reigns-Taker this year, I think you just look at the, the layout of things, and it's – I think it's – I don't want to say common sense, but I, I don't know that there's another match that makes sense that he could go to that is realistic that would headline WrestleMania other than – those two. I mean, they're not going to do. If you just look at Brock, they're not going to do Brock Taker again. Um, they could do Brock Cena again. It's starting to feel like it's been long enough. They could have built up Nakamura, but I think Nakamura would have been better off for as a Brock opponent last year, coming in hot, as opposed to now having been cooled down considerably. Uh, so, I just don't know that there's a lot. I mean, I guess Braun Strowman they could have kept away from Brock, and that would have been an, un, an unexpected option, but. I think WrestleMania main events, you can narrow it down if you follow the way Vince thinks and where he's headed. Even without inside information, you can narrow it down to only a a few options for the top, top guys. And in this case, I just don't think that there were other realistic options for either guy that made sense. So that combined with, yeah, people flat out saying that's that's the assumption internally uh, based on the way Vince is talking. I, I think it's been quite a while we've seen this coming. Was there ever a chance of Samoa Joe versus Lesnar at Mania and holding off that match at the uh, Great Balls of Fire pay-per-view? I think Joe, before he got hurt, was surprised Vince at how he he over-delivered um, what Vince was expecting from him. But by that time, I think the plans were pretty set for the, the pacing of, of where he wanted to go. I I think Reigns-Lesnar is... is very, I think Vince has been locked in on that for a while, and I don't think Joe, as over as he got, was looked to Vince as a match that he would want to change plans to accommodate. And if he did, if he saved Joe Lesnar for Mania, then he ha- would have to come up with a better opponent for Reigns. And if he did, he certainly could have saved Cena Reigns for Mania. 
Um, I mean, I think most people would probably have preferred save Rain Cena for Mania and build up Joe as this unstoppable badass, give him a win over Braun somewhere along the way, and go with, with Joe and Lesnar as kind of a dream match. I just don't think Joe reached that level in Vince's mind where that was a serious consideration. It might have been a thought that someone suggested or that he had, but I don't think it ever got close to displacing Lesnar Reigns in, in Vince's scenario. Vince, I mean, I, it, I think you could trace back Vince thinking of WrestleMania in 2018, Reigns-Lesnar. I think you could almost trace it back to the decision to have Lesnar beat Undertaker. Like, I mean, I don't think so, but you could almost make a case that Vince might have been thinking, all right, I want... I don't want Reigns to be the guy who ends the streak because that'll be used against him. Um, that might have been a thought. But even more so, I want Reigns to beat the guy who beat Undertaker, and I want Lesnar to be strong. I mean, it wouldn't even shock me if that thought wasn't in Vince's head back then. I'd have to kind of look at where Reigns was in the, in the landscape, but I think Vince has had his eyes on this, roughly speaking, if not specifically, for a long time as, a, as part of the passing of the torch process for Roman. Do you find it strange that nowadays the top guy, their top babyface, the guy that they're you know is going to be the quote unquote franchise in the company, isn't really necessarily the most over guy anymore? Is that strange at all? Yeah, it is. And I mean, you know, you ask me what keeps keeps me interested. I, I am fascinated by by this. I mean, John Cena sort of felt like an anomaly. Um, it, not an anomaly. It just. I don't know, that might be overstated. Just an exception to a rule, and it worked, and they went with it. And then to now have it happen with Reigns again, I, I'm, a, I'm a little concerned people are, are saying, well, that's just the way it's going to be. It's inevitable. I, I think, I think Reigns is being booed for some similar reasons to Cena and some very different reasons than Cena was by lot, a lot of the same people. I, I, don't think, I do not think that it's inevitable that whoever gets pushed the most is going to be booed uh, by the 18-54 you know, male demo. I don't think that's inevitable. Um, I think that it's 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 actually avoidable with Reigns even more than Cena because I think Reigns is a is a more cool dude than Cena was when he was getting booed. Cena got booed because he was a dork. Reigns gets booed because he comes off as a as a d bag, and and Reigns is better now than he had been. But guy, I mean, and I'm and I'm not saying like the person is at all, but his character is is scripted in a way, and his body language doesn't. It, it doesn't help at all. It hurts. Um, and I think the guys look at him, and, and, and it's just such a confluence of other things. I mean, you had, you had CM Punk cutting up, uh, or talking on that Cole Cabana podcast that was heard by millions of people, either directly or quotes on the Internet, you know, and word of mouth. I mean, that got Roman off to such a bad start. Punk quits and then says later, yeah, it's because, you know, I was told over and over, make Roman look good. And I think people resented Roman for that. People saw Vince protecting Roman early on, and he was a WWE developmental guy who was being carried by two guys with independent credentials. That worked against him. Then Daniel Bryan came along and got hugely over, and a lot of things worked against him. And then Roman with the best and the video game style wrestling moves. I mean, he wrestles like it's an 11-year-old playing a video game and using the same moves over and over, hitting the same button over and over. It's like it's, it, for a while it was ridiculous. Now he's gotten better on the mic but and way better in the ring, even if his moveset is still pretty limited. That's not disqualifying of being over. But I think the personality still hasn't connected with the audience yet. And I think Reigns, if Reigns opened up to and seemed a little more vulnerable 
and a little more willing to bring wrestling fans into his world and not just act sort of above it, I think that it would go a long way. But I don't think that people in WWE think that's the problem. I think they are defaulting to it's just the way of society today. And we saw it with Cena, and now we're seeing it with Reigns, and it has nothing to do with what we're doing, and it would happen no matter what, and there's nothing we can do to fix it. Um, and I just disagree with that. I, I think that it could be fixed, and it wouldn't be that difficult, assuming Reigns has it in him, to open himself up a little bit more, be a little more vulnerable, let his guard down a little bit. But maybe it is too late. I mean, it, it's possible it's too late, and that fans who don't like him aren't going to give him a fresh look, but I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I really don't. Um, so I don't think it'll be like this forever, And but I do think that the vocal fans who go to WrestleMania and the day after WrestleMania and they, they're on a vacation and they drink, you know, they, they start drinking beer at 2 p.m. instead of 8 p.m. and they don't have to get up for work the next day. Those fans are the ardent fans, and that's a different breed, and I think Vince writes them off as not being indicative of what he hears is happening at house shows, which is Reigns getting largely cheered most of the time. And so as long as the revenue is there, even if it frustrates Vince, I think that in his mind Roman is the most over guy, but he's just over in a polarizing way. And he's, he and his circle have resigned themselves to that as an inevitability. Do you think that if they did turn him heel, kind of like the rock in the attitude era, like he was booed, they hated him. They turned him heel. And then he became this gigantic baby face because that heel personality showed like, man, this guy is awesome on the mic. This guy, you know, he just showed so much more personality as a heel that he was able to translate to everybody, and then they turned him face. Do you think that's a smart move for Reigns or no? Yeah, I mean, I, I think he should. I think, I, I think at this point, I agree with Bruce Mitchell's assessment in the latest audio I did with him. I think you have to now finish what you – I don't, you don't have to, but I think they ought to just go with a plan now to WrestleMania. And, and keep him babyface. I think if they turned him heel six or nine or 12 or 15 months ago, that would have been the right time to do it. I, I think now, I mean, they still could. I'd probably vote for it because you know, I just I want them to do it. I don't want to miss an opening if Vince is open-minded to it. But he, I, I think now it, it's not that big of a deal to just wait six months and just see what happens between now and, and beating Lesnar, get a sense of, get a lay of the land, um, figure out if, if Lesnar's going to be around after that. Look at who you're, who, which baby faces are over on the main roster in NXT and assess things. I, I think if Roman had gone heel, he would have been he he might have been cheered, he might have been booed, and it would depend on two things. If he turned heel, did he simply become did he would he simply loosen up enough that fans would go, this is a guy that I think is finally being real with me, um, and would they have matched him against lame baby faces? If they matched him against baby faces who weren't over, and suddenly Roman seemed more real, he would have been cheered as a heel. But if they turned him heel, and he shows the tendencies that he has body language-wise, like against Jason Jordan, where it was very heelish um, in that Raw match, in the opening minutes of that match, and many other times where you just look at him, and I mean, it's just like this guy comes across as a jerk or as people have called my show and said a D bag. Like he's so, he can be so unlikable and so cocky and arrogant and sure. And so he comes across that he's so sure that he could have any woman in that building and that he's the coolest guy and that wrestling fans are beneath him. If, if he can tap into that, he's not going to get cheered as a heel, especially if he gets matched up against good baby faces. So it, it's sort the short answer is 
it depends. But the long, the, the long answer is, I think if they did things right, he absolutely would be effectively booed as a heel. But then I think after two, three years, when the time is right, then people would embrace him, and I think he would make a much better babyface once fans got it out of their system to boo him, and he earned their respect begrudgingly at times through improvement on the mic and just seeming more real and less programmed. Do you ever find it weird that a guy like Triple H will come out and say in an interview that, like, oh, it's, if, you know, it's good that he's polarizing, the, the fans will boo him, you know, the fans that boo him now would cheer him if he turned and, and vice versa. And he's kind of said the same thing about Cena. Do you find that a little bit weird? Because if Cena was, you know, at Hogan's level or at Austin's level, maybe you bring some fans back instead of you see a constant decrease of fans actually into it. I think it's potentially insincere and just spin to say that. Um, It's also possible that, he just started believing the internal dialogue um, and genuinely believes it. I don't know that for sure, but I know I strongly disagree with it. Um, I don't think it's, it's not, it's not what they want. They say it's what they want because they don't want the public image out there that they don't control their audience and that their audience rejects their storytelling. So, you know, it's, 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 yeah, no, I, I I just don't believe it for a second. He might believe it. I don't believe it. And I don't think, that it's true. Um, I think Vince McMahon works very hard constantly to get Roman Reigns cheered. And I think he's very frustrated that he's not. And when it doesn't work, Triple H is smart enough to know, I, don't, I can't in this interview say, yes, we want Roman Reigns cheered, and we're very frustrated that we can't figure out how to get this guy to be cheered. Because then it reflects poorly either on Roman Reigns or it reflects poorly on Vince McMahon and the machinery of WWE creative. So the company line has to be, this is not a bad thing. We're just fine with this. And I think they tell themselves that enough that some people believe it, and I think some people know it's spin. I'm not sure what category Triple H falls under, but it's totally it, – it, there's no way that if you offered Vince McMahon and Triple H uh, Roman Reigns that got a huge baby face pop from 100% of the audience versus a 60-40 or 50-50 split, that they wouldn't take 100% cheers every time. However, they'll take – the intensity of the reaction to Roman over apathy every time. And that, I think, is what he's getting into. I think that's the rational, true aspect of what he says is it's not, it's not what he and Vince prefer, but it's the next best thing, and it might not be too bad. And I might be crazy on this as, as far as seeing it because it kind of seems like it might be going down the same road with Roman unless they do something to get 100% of that audience behind him. But with Cena, it's weird. They keep saying, you know, he's the uh, uh, Babe Ruth-like, you know, figure. He's like the top dog, all sort of stuff. He's the only top star I've ever seen where the the top, you know, where, where the top star business has been down every year he's been on top. Am I crazy for, for thinking that? Because I never remember when Hogan was on top, that it, you know, it was like floundering or when Austin was at his peak. It was, you know, it was booming. I never really saw that boom period with Cena. Well, I'll say I, I don't think Austin was, was healthy enough, unfortunately, long enough to go through a period that went down. So we just don't know if it would have happened. Hogan and Cena were on top longer. So the, 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 the measurement for Austin, factually speaking, you're right. I think the odds of Austin staying over at, were, were very high. But I think any top star would admit you just don't know. 
I mean, it, ha- it there's there's so many things that a top star doesn't have control over that can undercut their staying over. With Hogan, it was not a, it was not a constant boom period. WWF was WWF absolutely struggled during stretches when Hogan was on top. Um, attendance did wane and ratings waned. There weren't as many measurements that we have now with quarterly, you know, quarterly public financials and uh, weekly TV ratings because Hogan was not a TV fixture and he he didn't wrestle every week on TV. I mean, and ratings were you know they were syndicated ratings and they weren't there weren't overnight ratings that got publicized on the internet. So the measurements were different. But attendance wise, Hogan it depended on the opponents and there were times Hogan struggled and when Hogan went to WCW it. it I mean, the narrative in the back issues, it's on record in the back issues of the Prosing Torch newsletter. This isn't working. Hogan, the, Hogan, the crowds were booing Hogan. They weren't turning out in big numbers. So um, I, Cena's run I would consider very successful, and I would say that the metrics that went down paralleled metrics going down, those same metrics going down in other industries in the sense that Cena, if Cena was at the helm of ratings going down, it was during a time when cable ratings went down anyway. And I'm a defender of post-Attitude Era wrestlers to this degree, that the Attitude Era was the exception, not the norm. So anybody who doesn't draw a 5 rating or a 4 rating shouldn't be seen as a failure because it's so long ago that the media and the metrics are all different. It's not apples to apples. But also, except for that you know, three, four-year stretch, cable ratings are about where they were anyway. Um, I think Cena, had Vince gone with somebody else or an ensemble, might have been more successful than building around Cena because I think Cena's face at the company turned off a lot of people to the product who might have otherwise been fans. But I also think he brought a lot of people in, and he brought people in as a top star at a time that WWE badly needed a stable, uh, heroic, controversy, scandal-free lead character. And Cena's rise coincided with the, a lot of wrestlers dying from drug overdoses, from the Chris Benoit murder-murder-suicide. And Cena projected a very corporate-friendly, safe environment that WWE and Vince McMahon desperately wanted to project. I mean, Vince has been looking for John Cena for a long time and only went the Steve Austin route out of desperation, you know, because he was losing in the, in the Attitude Era and Shawn Michaels had the bad back and Bret Hart wasn't the draw that he was hoping he would be. Um, so I think that Cena will be judged kindly, and I think he should be. I don't know if he will be. I think he should be judged kindly as somebody who helped usher in an era where despite all those scandals in the mid-2000s, that they are a publicly traded corporation with record revenues on cable's perennial number one mainstream channel with more high-end advertisers and corporate partnerships and charity tie-ins than they've ever had. And I'm not sure they get that if they don't have the all-American, Mr. Reliable, Hustle, loyalty, respect, lead baby face that they had in John Cena. Is it safe to say that Vince was always kind of looking for that that next Hogan, even though Hogan not yeah. not so much for a clean cut, but you know what I mean? Was he always in search of that next Hogan? Yeah, and I think it's I think every promoter was always in search of the next big baby face, or in some cases the next big heel, but usually the next big baby face. And I think it's smart to do it. I think, I mean, 
Brett Favre still had good football in him when Aaron Rodgers rose up through the ranks and became the heir apparent. Steve Young's or Joe Montana had a little bit left in him when Steve Young took over. Um, there are uh, Drew Bledsoe um, and and Tom Brady. Uh, Tom Brady rose up. So teams that have successful quarterbacks are always looking for a younger, better quarterback. And if they find one, they're happy. And you don't wait till you don't have a quarterback to look for a new one. If so, just in general, I guess I'd just say, yeah. I mean, Vince Senior was looking for a replacement for Bruno Sammartino and picked Bob Backlund uh, to be that person. And Vince, when he took over, you know, saw what Hulk was doing in the AWA, and Hulkamania was running wild there, and he was drawing huge crowds, and he wanted him. But then he also looked at Randy Savage and Ultimate Warrior and Sid as other people who kind of – in Lex Luger, obviously, after Hogan left, um, who fit that, that image – and then there was the Attitude Era, with certain exceptions to the, to the rule, because it was the Attitude Era. But then as soon as the Attitude Era was over and it became ruthless aggression, then you know, he was looking at Batista, John Cena, uh, uh, Brock Lesnar, and, and trying to figure out who in this group, Randy Orton, who in this group can I build around, and Cena rose. You know, and Cena talked about that in a, uh, with uh, Edge and Christian a couple of weeks back on a, a rare, long-form, free-flowing interview with Cena. Um, you know, Cena rose above a very strong class of wrestlers, and Vince loved him. I mean, he was, with all due respect to Shane McMahon, John Cena was a son Vince never had. You know, he was, hmm. he was a, 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 just everything Vince would want in a lead baby face, other than the guys liking him as much as they liked Steve Austin and eventually The Rock. Yeah, the the Rock, obviously, too. It is crazy in the wrestling business when you think about it. Like, you always have to look for the next guy. Like, Cena's here. He's the now. You know, he's like, he's the top guy. But then you got Roman Reigns, and you're looking for Roman. You're always looking for that next guy. Were you surprised that they kind of pulled the trigger with that match on such a nondescript pay-per-view? With Cena and Reigns? Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yes, and I... I... I think that, and I think this is something we'll have to judge in eight months and look back on it because I think they tried to fit in as many John Cena meaningful dream matches as they could, just in case, um, just in case that he is really unavailable for that frequency of dates after this. Um, the retirement is a work, but the I'm. The, the scene is saying I'm 41, going on 41 years old, and I have these other opportunities, and it's getting harder to recover, and I can't work the schedule that I worked just five years ago. That's all a shoot. And so if the goal is to get Roman Reigns mega over and to take advantage of Cena's equity to help get other people over, I, yes, he rushed it. But, you know, we say nondescript pay-per-view, but they're in a different business now. They're not building towards – two or four big matches per year to do a huge amount of revenue that carries their year. WrestleMania used to do such an incredible amount of revenue that it carry, it just would carry the year. Well, they're not getting $70 from, from uh, you know, a million people now. They're getting $10 from two million people year-round. That's what they're hoping, and they want to grow from there. So there's not... 
they have monthly live specials, and WrestleMania is still a big deal, and SummerSlam is still a big deal. And Royal Rumble inevitably is because of the, the, the gimmick of the match and the timing of it coming after football season and it as a setup for WrestleMania. That's inherently going to be big. But they're not in the business now of holding back big matches if they might end up thus missing out on that big match. So the title of the pay-per-view doesn't mean as much anymore. What they're worried about now is keeping the churn rate down. And so if they have a chance, if they have Cena willing and Reigns without a big opponent otherwise, they're going to deliver that match on a pay-per-view without a rich tradition if they think that it's going to draw in subscribers at a time when otherwise they'd be losing subscribers. And so I think it's just – I'm not sure that match would have happened if it weren't WWE Network era. I think Vince probably would have held off and gambled on that. But now I think he's more willing to because they're learning – they have to keep people interested every single month because people are fickle and they will cancel if they don't feel that this month's pay-per-view, if they feel this month's pay-per-view is being phoned in and weak, they'll cancel. And they're trying very hard to not let that happen. Now, as far as Daniel Bryan is concerned, is there any truth to the fact or, or the, the teasing that he's kind of putting out there that he will leave in 2018 and wrestle in Mexico and wrestle in Ring of Honor and things like that? Have you heard any rumors or any speculation as far as that? Yeah, I think I, I think as soon as his WWE deal is up, he's going to pack his bags and leave that day, and he's going to start taking bookings the day after. I think he wants to wrestle badly. You think that's a, a smart idea or a wise decision by him? Like, Is his health really a concern? There's things that I'm confident in, and there's things that I am that I don't know enough to give a, a for sure answer on, and Brian's brain is one that I don't know enough about. Um, if he was, it, let's put it this way, if he was my brother, I would have mixed feelings. And I would talk to him, and I'd want to learn more, and I'd want to know, is he fooling himself? Is he listening to select physicians or is in, 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 in denial? Or is WWE as a corporation having to be overly protective? And they saw him, in a way, as kind of interfering with something that Vince felt was more important, which was getting Roman Reigns over. And so are they being a little more strict with Brian than they should be, or they would be otherwise? Um, I, I think there's a, a lot of different factors playing into it. I, I think – and he did this actually on a Total Bellas episode. He showed that he was, had put a lot of thought into how to adjust his style in the ring so that he wasn't taking as many bumps that would cause brain trauma. And so I'm curious to see if he lives up to that and if he actually does that when he's a free agent and working his own dates, which I think he will do. Um, And if he does that and he's had all this time off, my tendency is to say go for it because it's really what he wants to do. Um, You know, I mean, I, I don't love these analogies a lot, but, you know, when you get in a car and go on a road trip to the Grand Canyon, there's, there's, a lot, of, a lot of people die in car crashes. And if you're on the road for a long time with your family, somebody might swerve across the lane and run into you, and you would have been better off staying at home and watching Netflix with your kids. But, if, but then you wouldn't have had the opportunity to see the Grand Canyon with your kids, and we take chances every day. And I think Daniel Bryan, as a, as a grown man, looking at all the data with a wife who loves him and now a dad with something to live for, if he, I have to trust him to look at what the experts are saying and be smart about his wrestling style. And if this is what he needs to do to feel happy and fulfilled in this life, and he's willing to take that chance, I'm not the one to tell him no. 
That said, I don't begrudge WWE saying no, because if they feel with a lot more information than I have that Daniel Bryan's making a mistake or it's just a calculated risk that they're not willing to take, then I, I don't begrudge them not wanting to sanction Daniel Bryan wrestling. I think it would be if Bryan said, I want out of my contract so I can go wrestle now, I think WWE probably should accommodate him in that regard, but contractually they're not ob- obligated to. Uh, but So, yeah, I, I, just, it's, I think it's complicated and nuanced, but my, my tendency is to think Danny Bryan really, 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 really wants to wrestle again, and I don't think that it's, it's just a, such a boneheaded decision based on the facts that I know that I would say, say to a grown, intelligent man, don't, don't, do, don't live your dream because there's some risk. But I think he should closely monitor himself, and I am not going to be in a crowd – cheering him taking bumps off the top rope out of the floor or taking chair shots to the head. Like, I, I will be very upset if I see that. Like, I, I will be very disappointed if he does that. He's too skilled to have to take chances now in that way. If I see him do a top rope headbutt, I, I take any, any open-mindedness away towards him wrestling again. He should not have been doing that headbutt at all and not allowed to do that headbutt at all for years, and he kept doing it. So, when I, when I think about that, I start to question my judgment, and I just hope fatherhood and time away from the ring uh, sobered him up enough to know he, can, he is over and he can stay over doing many wonderful things in the ring to tell stories in a match without doing things that obviously have impact on his brain. Yeah, obviously that's the scariest thing is the, uh, the long-term effects. As much as we would love to uh, cheer for the guy and watch the guy perform, obviously long-term health effects, uh, they just supersede everything in life uh, when it comes to our entertainment. But did you happen to see with your side of the business and the, and the torch the uh, somewhat of a spike when the whole Daniel Bryan phenomenon took off? Uh, because I know going to shows and, and seeing the you know the crowd reaction and the merchandise and this and that did it bring more eyeballs to the torch while people were caught up in the uh, the yes 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 mania? Um. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I could isolate. I don't know that I look at the metrics close enough and match them up to that time period. Like, it, it's weird, and some people would go, how can you not, you know, how can you not pay attention to that? But I sort of know what I'm going to do in my job. Um, and so it's not, I don't like really adjust what I do based on thoroughly looking at all the metrics and trying to match them up in that way because I'm going to do what I'm going to do. So I don't know. Um, I'd have to go back and look and then isolate. Like part of it is I'd have to isolate that somehow from other things that were going well in wrestling or well with, you know, people finding out about me. So, yeah, I just I don't have a, a good solid answer to that. Nothing, nothing that I remember would be my short, simple answer. It's just interesting because, you know, I, I see how um, a lot of mainstream eyeballs have come towards wrestling in a time where, you know, the, the ratings have been down, but it seems like, Wrestling gets uh, so much more coverage now uh, from outside sources that I don't think anybody could have ever predicted would be covering it. And it seemed like Daniel Bryan was really kind of the, at the forefront of that turning of the corner and, and seeing how people were getting behind the yes, 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 and seeing it done at sporting events and seeing players, you know, embracing wrestling in all different sports. Which I know they have in the past, but it seems like over the last three to four years we've just seen such an upswing and that, and even you know, the emergence of the Indies and the popularity of the Indies. Do you think Daniel Bryan really had 
an overall impact, though, on the business and how people really looked at um, not just the entertainment value, but actually people getting back into the wrestler and the guy doing the wrestling holds? I think that when you have somebody who is as popular as Daniel Bryan and it's a grassroots movement where you can see the fans choosing him, not the promoter choosing to push him, he connected with fans in a way that doesn't come around a lot. Um, so that that's undeniable, that he was very over, and I think that there would be more people attending Raw and SmackDown right now if he were – if if he had been consistently pushed well, I think that they would be better off by a measurable margin with him still as a top babyface. That said, I'm not a believer that in 2017 or 2016 or 2015 even, that mainstream media attention matters much. Um, I don't think that makes a measurable difference. I think it can be symptomatic of a, of a hot period, so it's, 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 it's not that if you're getting media attention in places you don't normally get it, that it's a bad thing or it's a neutral thing. But I don't think it helps business. I think it's a sign that you're doing things right. But it doesn't cause things to go better. So when Danny Bryan was getting mainstream attention, that mainstream attention didn't help WWE do better business. It was a sign that WWE was doing some things right that was leading to better business. I don't think with the segmented world that we live in now that people are going to choose to watch Monday Night Raw because they see something on a college game or sports center or a, a radio interview, some radio interview guy talking about it. I don't think it makes a measurable difference. I mean, it's all positive, but I don't think it's, I think there's broad strokes that make a, such a bigger difference that that stuff just doesn't add up to much. And that is just promoting a really good product on the air. Um, and pushing the right guys, having a strong narrative structure, um, having good announcing, uh, having a promotion that seems cool and connected to your audience and doesn't seem behind the times or lackluster or phoning it in. Like, I mean, there's just those things make such a bigger difference than a, a mainstream media buzz. I, I, I just, I mean, I, I could be wrong on that, I just, but I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't think that, I think that's the, thinking the tail wags the dog when you talk about that. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, and I think a lot of the mainstream coverage, uh, you know, it's not always, uh, it, it's not, it, it's not as, uh, it, it's what you would expect. You know what I mean? It's not, uh, to me, there's a lot out there, you know, there's a lot of references they get brought up. There's a lot of little cutesy things that they do, but it, to me, it's, at the end of the day, it's, it, it, I'm always going to scratch my head when you see certain mainstream outlets uh, covering wrestling and, and kind of spotlighting certain parts of it. But I, I got to ask you this, and this is just something I, I got to, you know, I, I really got to bring to the forefront here. With WWE, you know, they're the only game in town, so to speak, when it comes to the big dogs. And there's so many, uh, you know, just emerging independent outlets that have been around but are starting to really get a nice spotlight from the talent that they've really just had uh, climbing up the ranks for many, many years. And we see uh, people really – taking to the indies and we're watching all these streaming channels pop up where you can watch random independent shows from California or from Scotland or from, you know, Boston. Um, do you think that the independent scene is in its hottest peak? Uh, I know during the attitude era, you know, your random independent show could have 2000 people at it, but 
from the wrestling point of view, do you think the indies are the hottest that they've ever been right now? I think so, yeah. I do. I mean, I would like to see bigger crowds and more consistent big crowds from pockets of the country where, like, it's, I mean, it's so weird because the, the measurement is different in that I, I was around at a time bef- I, I was watching wrestling, not covering it, but I was watching it and learning about it at a time when there were so many more fans buying tickets on a weekly basis outside of WWF, even outside of WWF and WCW or the NWA main territory. So the indies get judged on sort of a, a, a curve of if there's more than 50 people or more than 120 people, it's a boom period. And there was a time in wrestling where there were, you know, 20 arenas on a, on a 20 arenas per weekend with 20 different promotions that were drawing 5,000 plus fans. And we're nowhere close to that, but those were territories. And in that case, pre Vince McMahon expansion, those territories were seen as a major league and were in essence a monopoly in their town. So it's different when we say indies. What we mean is it's not – usually it means it's not on a major television station and perceived by the majority of the people in that market as the major league. Everybody in the United States knows WWE is the NBA or NFL of basketball or football. It is to, to wrestling what they are to, to pro sports. So the measurement's different, but if we go back to the 90s when Vince, dom- when Vince was dominating or the 2000s, I think because of social media and – wrestlers being able to reach out through, you know, the the Young Bucks YouTube channel and huge followings on Instagram and Twitter that that it's easier for good indie promotions promoting good wrestling and with hot talent that provides an alternative an alternative to WWE's product. I think it's easier for them to draw better more sustainable profitable sized crowds but i'm the it seems to be still a pretty low ceiling and that so it's hot they're hotter than it's been in a while and the social media buzz is amp more amplified and passionate but i don't see it, i want to see there being a month where we hear about six or eight indie promotions drawing three, 4,000 people at these mid-sized venues. And then I'll say, yeah, this is a whole level higher than anything I've ever seen before. And I just don't think we're quite there. Um, with, and and it, when that happens, there will be more wrestlers who, who do what maybe Neville is doing right now or what Cody Rhodes has done or what, where you go, I'm going to go make more money being my own boss and drawing outside of the auspices of, of WWE and practice my craft that way and make a really good living, that's when, that's when collectively indie wrestling becomes competition to Vince McMahon for talent. And he's just not quite there yet. We, we see it a lot. We're out there on the road. We go to the shows. Uh, we're at conventions. Yeah. We see the guys that leave you know, from WWE, whether they're fresh off or a few months after, and you see the guys that kind of adapt to it very well, and you kind of see the guys that – uh, not that they have shell shock leaving, but maybe the buzz wasn't there that they thought would be. And obviously Cody Rhodes 
really at the top of the list in terms of the guys that just, you know, it's shot to the moon after the uh, the WWE parting. Uh, but then you got other people that come to mind like, you know, Damian Sandow or Wade Barrett or even a Ryback where they left and Wade Barrett went on to do other things and Sandow whatever happened with him going down to impact and, and changing his character up a couple times. And now he's kind of phased out of uh, professional wrestling and Ryback, you know, being a guy who, who travels the country doing indie shows, doing conventions. Um, I think Cody Rhodes would really be at the top of that list. And I'm curious to see where Neville is going to fall because obviously Neville was a huge standout on the independent scene, uh, especially internationally before he uh, he signed with WWE. What do you kind of see in the cards here for Neville as he uh, is potentially branching out here into the wild again? I think it'll be good, but not great for him. Um, I think that there'll be a bit of a stench of a of a 205 Live division, a cruiserweight division that wasn't red hot. He's not leaving uh, as this red hot character who was being underpushed. He's leaving as a really good worker who established a, a really, a, a really uh, well-honed heel persona, but he wasn't part of hot feuds. He wasn't really part of many showcase memorable matches. So he's going to have to earn the buzz on the indie scene more than, say, Cody Rhodes did, who had the last name Rhodes and has turned into this master marketer of of things where – you know, he, he left on his terms, and he showed immediately to the ardent fan, I know who your favorites are, and here's my bucket list and my meticulously uh, manicured hands <laughs> um, with a pen, um, and here's pictures, but I know what you like, and I want to be part of it. And he did what, you know, a lot of wrestlers don't do. Cody isn't Neville in terms of in-ring skill. Cody's having good matches, not great matches, but he's turned out to be a really smart entrepreneur and has has succeeded because of that. So, yeah, I, I mean, everybody's everybody is an individual situation. You know, I mean, the guys you mentioned, everybody's individual. There's there's different reasons guys are over and not over. You know, bigger wrestlers don't get over on the indie scene as much for whatever reason. You know, um, fans who go to indie shows don't care about being larger than life. They want to see a great match, and they're up close. And it's and some of the bigger wrestlers they just can't keep up, um, and, and it's just you know for whatever reason um, uh, a Neville will have a better chance than than a Damian Sandow would um, getting over uh, on the indie scene and, and finding dates. So I mean I think Neville do very well whether he goes to Japan or just works you know ROH and Europe dates or whatever it is he'll be in demand. Um, but I don't think it's it's just going to be like red hot. He's, he sells a thousand tickets. Do you think that injury that he had that cost him a lot of time may have hurt his uh, long term uh, value to the WWE fans on seeing him on the Indies, and that this heel character, albeit probably the best work he did there, maybe could have had a little bit longer of a run if he didn't miss all that time from uh, from that injury he had. Yeah, you could also say that. How many people are better off because they're on WWE TV who are his type of wrestler? Um, maybe he maybe he's better off because he wasn't overexposed and not jobbed out or not um, not around every single week being misused or diminished or defined down. I think you can make a case either way. I I don't know. Yeah, I, I think he's probably in a similar situation either way. 
As we hit the wind down button, I just got to ask some like generic questions of you, but just curious because of your stature in the business and how long you've been covering the business coming up on 30 years, obviously. And, you know, you, you know, you know, a lot, you cover a lot, you, you, you're kind of a go-to guy for a lot of wrestlers and, and obviously a lot of fans alike, but do you yourself have any like favorite wrestlers that stick out, not, not only covering them, but actually like watching them perform? Um, in a different way than probably most fans do in the, in the sense that it doesn't even cross my mind to like buy a t-shirt of a wrestler I like and wear it around. Like that would be, you, you can't, you can't do what I do and do that, um, without changing my brand, which is someone who covers the industry, but isn't marking out for the wrestlers or, or, uh, or playing favorites is probably a better way to put it. You know, however people would phrase it and see that. So I don't like look at wrestling that way. I have friends who do, and it's great. Um, so I don't look at it that way, but I mean, obviously there's times where I'm going to, I'm going to go to an event. Like there's sometimes I go, when there's a live event, I might go to it and I might not just depending on my work schedule, my family schedule, um, all kinds of factors. Uh, whether I'm in town or want to schedule to be in town, there's wrestlers who I'd go out of my way to see, and then somewhere I'm like, yeah, you know, I already saw them. Um, I'm giving very broad, generic answers, but I don't really have like a short list of current favorites. And I've been doing it so long, covering it from the standpoint of it's not about me, it's not about what I like, it's about studying the industry, studying the business, and trying to figure out who others, who the masses like and if the promotion is taking full advantage of it, that I think I would have to step away from my job for a year or two and watch it differently in order to have it even enter my mind of, yeah, this guy's my favorite. I'm gonna, I want to go pay to see him and cheer him. Like, I'm in a different place than that. Um, but obviously, I mean, you can tell in my reviews that I write on PWTorch.com or the, the podcast that I do, who I think is doing a great job and who is entertaining me either in matches or in their promos and then who's not. So in that, in that respect, I put out there every day, um, every week who my favorites are, but it's not just one or two guys. Um, I don't like have a, a, a single wrestler who it's like, Oh, I just, I seek out his matches and watch everything. I'm, I'm not really at that place. What about some of your favorite matches? Basically, not a, not a 2017 per se, but maybe like your favorite matches of all time. Are there matches that stick out to you more than others, or at this point you've covered you know for 30 years? It's kind of uh, all blending together. Yeah, um, it's it's more of a blending together. Uh, I mean, I guess you can sort of apply a lot of what I said about the favorite wrestler to it. I I it things come at us now so fast. And there's so much good wrestling out there that I, I, don't ha- I don't, like, reflect a lot on, like, okay, in the last year, this was my favorite, you know, my favorite top five matches. Like, I don't, I just can't wrap my brain around that anymore because there's so much coming at me that I'm covering and analyzing in real time. Um, so I, I always, I feel a little guilty because people ask me, and it's a go-to question for like, oh, who's your favorite wrestler? And, like, I don't, I don't know if NBA beat writers get that question. Like, who's your favorite basketball player? Maybe they do. Um, but I, it's, I think of it more, you know, what's, your, what's the favorite part of your job as an analyst? I can answer that better than I, than I can 
what comes across as more of a question of, for a fan of who's your favorite player, who's your favorite, what's your favorite game that you've watched. I think you can do both. It's just I don't spend a lot of time ranking them in my head. I mean, my favorite match is the first live event I went to because it was the most exciting night of my you know, sports life, being able to see wrestling in person. Uh, and since then, it was, you know, it was six years later I started doing the torch, and then from there I just I, – I, I mean, I could certainly – you could sit down and go, all right, here's the top ten matches – as ranked by you know a, a group of fans or you know or, or a poll, um, which of these is your favorite from 1998 and 1999 and 2000? And I could certainly answer that, but off the top of my head to say, oh, there's this one match in '97 that I like better than anything in 2005, I can't do that anymore. What was the main event in 1981? What was uh... <laughs> it? Was Vern Gagne's retirement match against Nick Bockwinkel? Uh, oh wow! Vern Gagne was 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 the AWA champion. Nick Bockwinkel was challenging him. It was Vern's retirement from full-time wrestling um, and uh, in a sold-out St. Paul Civic Center with a old-school vibe, cigarette smoke and, uh, you know, ring lights, nothing fancy, wrestlers walking out through the tunnel, through the crowd with security surrounding them. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just it was a, an amazingly different experience than anything people today have. Um, but, you know, even, even the NHL is different now. When I go to NHL games now compared to – 1981, when I first started going to North Star Games, uh, now the Dallas Stars, but uh, the Minnesota North Star Games, I mean, it's a very different atmosphere there, too. It's just part of that is, you know, arenas have changed and lighting has changed and uh, all of that, but and things have become more corporate and more family-oriented than they were for both pro wrestling and the NHL. So some of it is just sort of inevitable. But, yeah, I mean, my, I mean, yeah, I think my favorite match is the first main event I ever went to. And uh, but, I, but, like, I mean, I, the, my favorite TV match uh, was probably Ric Flair, Gary Von Erich, Texas Stadium, because I had heard and read so much about Ric Flair, and that was my first chance to see him in a main event match because I didn't have cable as a kid. And so watching him in syndication in the Texas Stadium main event um, at uh, Parade of Champions, you know, it wasn't the best match that I saw that year, but it was probably my favorite match because I got to see Ric Flair in a match that I knew would make headlines in the wrestling magazines that I was reading. So... You know, but that's going way back, and I've seen way many, way better matches since then. But they're so the matches are so different from one another, and sometimes the better match isn't always my favorite match because sometimes it, it's about other things besides just great athleticism. Great answer, and those are some great matches. Flair Von Erich is, you know, maybe not as as great as some of the Flair Steamboat or something. Great match, great memory. Obviously, anything with Nick Bockwinkel is definitely a must-watch. But as far as as you, and obviously, you're, you know, Jim Melby Award, you're your Hall of Famer, you're one of the best journalists out there. I mean, you make the wrestling business, as far as a journalist part, that makes, you know, more of a positive than anything. Is. You mean, you, you see some of these mainstream people cover wrestling, and, you know, it's eye-rolling, but then you, you follow your stuff, like, wow, this is refreshing, this is great, I love the way he covers the business. So do you have a favorite aspect of, of, you know, through your Hall of Fame journey here? Do you have a favorite aspect of covering the business? Is it the interviews? Is it the dissecting the shows? Is it dissecting the wrestlers? Yeah. Um, man, it's, it's, I, I, there's not much about my job that I don't like except when technology fails me. You guys know that feeling. Um, <laughs> you, know, unex- you know, if a computer crashes or a mic stops working 
or there's a problem with software that's caused a huge headache that throws me way off uh, on my plans. You know, that stuff's frustrating, but I, I, I like the variety things that are part of my job. I, I wish I wrote more. I, I, I'm always striving to do more writing and almost never get to do as much writing as I want to. Um, so I wish I did more of that. That's not what you asked, but that's what I wish I did more of because I, really I really enjoy writing an editorial or a thoroughly researched news story where I just can spend time on it and then three days later go back and read it and be proud of it. And I don't get to do that as much now because of the, the pace of things and how much podcasting I do. But I, re- I mean, I really enjoy podcasting. I really enjoy either talking with other journalists and analysts who I respect and I learn from. Um, and, you know, being able to do the Bruce Mitchell audio show now for 13 years and to learn from him, you know, when we do our history pieces and that, that's one of my favorite parts of the job, but having, you know, ex-creative team members on and, and trying to figure, learn from them about the creative process in WWE and Vince McMahon, I, I enjoy that. Uh, I certainly enjoy wrestlers. I, I got to interview Ted DiBiase and Jim Ross this week, and that, those are all, I mean, that being able to tap into the minds of people who have been the places that they've been um, and to do long-form interviews with them is probably, probably the favorite part of my job, but it really is close. I analyze you know, analyzing a pay-per-view when it's over and getting together with my team and, and recording a, a roundtable afterwards, um, that's a really fun part of the job, too. And so, yeah, um, there's a few things that I like. Now, this is kind of a, a random question out of nowhere, but I always felt like I wanted to kind of know the answer of it. And it, Tell me if it's just a weird question, but what is the relationship like, if there is any relationship, with Dave Meltzer and obviously the Wrestling Observer? Is there a relationship, a few? Do you guys get along? Like, I'm always curious about that between you two. We, uh, we just saw each other a year and a half ago in Waterloo, Iowa, at the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. And we hadn't talked. I'm trying to think the last time we talked on the phone, or, you know, at all. we hadn't seen each other and even longer, but even talking on the phone, it might have been, it might have been at when Brian Pillman died, so we might have been going on like 20 years, which is crazy. Um, it might have been, I, I know we talked about it and figured it out, and I kind of forgot, but it had been a real long time, and we just like picked up where we left off. We, I used to talk to Dave in the late 80s and into the early 90s. I probably talked to Dave on average six hours a week on the phone for years. Um, and then I'm not quite sure at what point, it happened, and uh, but we just stopped because I think we both, as Dave says, we just both got so busy. Um, and so in the early 90s, we just kind of went our own way and just ended up kind of talking to different people. I, I, think our, our, I think our social circles, each of our social circles expanded, and we, I, in a way I think we sort of felt like we owed it to our readers and to chronicling wrestling to not talk to each other to the point that we would share each other's opinions and that we would come to our own conclusions in our own newsletter on big stories and not share details and sway each other. I think there was probably an unstated mutual belief that that might be good for both of us. And so without any kind of falling out, we just kind of, I wouldn't even say grew apart. We just sort of uh, floated apart and started getting really busy with our own things. Um, But I mean, yeah, I mean, there's been times where I was like, I don't agree with what Dave wrote, or I don't like even how he handled that situation with a source, or 
or with a controversy. Um, but I, I just, the totality of his work and his approach to what he does, I have immense respect for him and uh, don't have any personal gripes with him. We certainly never had a falling out. Now, you guys are arguably the two biggest wrestling journalists, so, I mean, that's just a natural question for me. I always always was kind of thinking, like, I wonder if those two get along. Being, like, you know, the, the two big dogs kind of, uh, you know, on the, on the lay of the land. So just always was curious about that, just from a, a long-time wrestling fan perspective. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand that. I, I mean, I, I get that question semi-regularly. Now, with Dave, he kind of does his star rating thing. Do you ever kind of get wrapped up in that? Like, you know, you should kind of be rating matches and things like that. Because obviously to him, he says it's not really a big deal. It's just something he does. Is that anything that you kind of think like, oh, I should adapt or, or, or maybe not copy it or anything, but like that you should be doing the same thing because you're kind of on an even playing field? Uh, yeah, I do. And I have uh, I've given star ratings to every pay-per-view match since like 1989. So um, I don't do it to TV matches very often because I think they serve a different purpose then the star rating uh, accommodates particularly well. Um, I would say that I, I'm less – I watch less wrestling than Dave, which is we, very weird to say given how much wrestling I watch. Um, but I don't I – do, our jobs are different in that I spend a lot – I spend a lot more time podcasting and a lot more time interviewing other people, um, and I'm more WWE-focused. But – Every big WWE match for nearly 30 years I've given a star rating to that's been on pay-per-view. And so they're out there. Um, but I definitely don't spend as much time analyzing my own star ratings or talking with my team about their star ratings, in part because um, a lot of the people I do podcasts with don't aren't big on that. So it's kind of kept me away from having as many discussions on it and debates on it. I think it's very subjective. Um, not 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 random, but I think it's subjective, and so that you can only go so far in talking about how many stars or something. It's like Jason Powell doesn't do star ratings, and I've been podcasting with him, you know, regularly, seemingly forever on a regular basis, and so that doesn't come up with him. Todd Martin doesn't do star ratings uh, on the, and, and I do two hours with him on the fix with Todd Martin for VIP members every Wednesday. Bruce does them somewhat, but it's more like, ah, is that in the three or three and a half or four star range? Sometimes I'll ask him, and he'll be like. No, probably a four-star range. But we don't, like, nail it down. Like, we need to know, does this qualify as four stars or three and three quarters? We don't get, we don't get kind of hung up on that. Um, and it's not because we don't – it's not for any, like, concrete reason. It's just something that isn't a big thing. But, I, yeah, I mean, I absolutely have, at times over the years, gotten the observer, opened it up, opened up my torch, and said, oh, I wonder how close Dave and I came. And, I mean, we're almost always within a quarter star of each other. And then there'll be a match where we're, like, two stars off. And we're like, oh, that's interesting. And, and uh, I remember Dave telling me, like, 20, 25 years ago, he was like, Wade, you gave that match, like, three and a half stars, and I gave it one and a half stars. And I went back and had to rewatch it because I had to see if I missed something. Um, it might have been flipped around. Maybe I gave it a bad rating. He gave it a good one. But I remember him telling me once, I saw your star rating. I'm like, I saw this so differently, I need to rewatch it. And so – I'll see a star rating, and it'll make me kind of think, okay, I was off on that. I, I, I haven't done that as often lately, and I don't know why. But, um, but there are times where it's, I still semi-regularly will just put the newsletter side by side and be like, oh, two and three quarters, and I gave it two and a half. Oh, three and three quarters, I gave it three and three quarters. Oh, one star, and I gave it one and a half stars. And they, they parallel each other pretty well. I probably worded that a, a little bit poorly. I kind of was meaning that 
in the sense of for some reason people literally will pick a fight with him and it'll be it'll become the star ratings will become a story in and of itself you kind of don't seem to no. you know get get into that that aspect of it that that's kind of what i meant absolutely no absolutely i don't and i don't know why it doesn't happen maybe i don't bite um and i haven't made it seem like that's something that i'll respond to i mean i I, for whatever it's worth, I mean, just earlier today or yesterday, somebody said uh, Melter gave four and a quarter stars to Kevin Owens and Shane McMahon, and you guys, uh, Bruce Mitchell, Todd Martin, and I dogged on the match on Sunday. You know what's going on? Um, and so I'm in a, you know, I'm currently in a Twitter discussion on, you know, the the star rating. So I mean, it's it's it happens, but not not as often. And I'm, yeah, I'm not not quite sure why. Other than like I said, Dave watches more matches, and so. You know, if there's a New Japan show, boom, he's watching it live or within a few hours, and the star ratings are public, and then people are hanging on his every rating to see if they agree or disagree and think he did it justice. And that's a little different than how I'm, you know, that he does more of that, so it probably makes sense that he would get more uh, more feedback, and then that would just sort of feed on itself. Yeah, the only other place that star ratings weigh that much is on Star Search. So I think uh, if that's the competition <laughs> we've got for wrestling, then uh, I think uh, the star ratings will always be an argument that everybody has. Now, Wade, this has been an absolutely fun chat we've had with you, uh, just going over so many parts of what you've done, what you're still going to be doing, and that's kind of where we wrap before we get to the big plug is when you look at what you've been doing over the last 30 years, and when you look ahead kind of in the crystal ball, obviously this relationship with Podcast One is, is growing uh, what you've been doing in the torch has always been changing, but where do you see yourself, the torch, the podcast in five years? Do you see yourself still dominating, doing this this long, uh, arduous schedule, or do you see yourself maybe uh, kind of creating your uh, another little world here as we evolve with media, and, and maybe the uh, the torch is almost going to be like that ESPN of professional wrestling? I don't have any idea. I really don't. I, I mean, the every every couple of years, I just look and go, wow. I wouldn't have imagined two years ago that this, you know, this would be kind of where things would be. I, 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 I do not have a game plan. Um, I don't have long term goals. I do sort of in, in 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 the specifics of what you're asking about because. I, if I spent too much time making plans, I think I would miss an opportunity that came up that was unexpected. Um, and and there's been too many twists and turns over these 30 years that were unforeseeable that I, I guess it sort of humbled me into not thinking you – know, I think it would be arrogant of me to have any idea how, what my hours would be and where I'll be spending my time in five years. I think that I have, don't have any plans to re, like retire or move on to something else. Um, so – as long as I can make a living doing what I do and I'm enjoying doing it. And by making a living doing it, that means I'm doing a good enough job that people seek out my coverage. Then I mean, I mean, I enjoy it too much to, to stop. But like, yeah, I, 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 I can say this. I don't, I, I'm not probably the, the type who would want to radically change what I've become accustomed to in terms of, I don't want to have like, I don't want to have 100 employees or 12 full-time employees and drive to an office every day and do it, like change my job from a home office-based job that's relatively small and entrepreneurial where I'm 
doing kind of the majority of the work, and I'm very hands-on. Like, I don't see myself doing something different than that. Um, I think I still want to be – I want to be, a, to use wrestling parlance, a, I want to be a talent in the sense that I'm putting myself out there as the main analyst and writer, and I also want to be a facilitator who brings talented people in to have conversations that I can learn from and, and exchange analysis and ideas and coverage with. I think that's been my signature from the time I started the torch and filled the pages with columnists. Um, and I think I'll still want to do interviews because I've been doing interviews since the late 80s, and I really enjoy that aspect of it. So I think I'll still be a talent in the sense that I'll be the face of the brand, and I'll still be corroborating. I'll be collaborating uh, and having other people that I work with on a very regular basis, and I'll still be doing interviews. But I don't know what the media format or what my schedule will be or if there'll still be a live Raw and a live SmackDown on Mondays and Tuesdays dictating my early week schedule to the degree that it does now. That I can't predict. Yeah, you never know. Just hopefully that Raw goes down at least an hour, uh, maybe even two at this point. Go back to those uh, easy one-hour shows like we had in the uh, in the in the, <laughs> the early half of uh, Money Night Raw. But wait, obviously, again, thank you so much for for coming on with us, and please share sure. with the listeners of the two-man power trip where they can find anything and everything in the world of Wade Keller with the torch, with the podcast. Please direct everybody in that way at this time. Well, first and foremost, uh, you can find my podcasts by searching Wade Keller on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And then my, uh, the blue logo with my face on it will pop up and click subscribe. Um, you can also uh, just go to Podcast One's website or the Podcast One app and uh, subscribe there. And you can also visit my website, pwtorch.com, and I read my reports. I cover Raw and SmackDown and WWE pay-per-views live. I'm typing live reports as they happen, so you can find out um, what I think of the show as it's happening. So that is uh, a good way to and, and visit the site every day. We've got a lot of columnists and flashbacks and breaking news and house show reports and other TV coverage. Um, and then if, if you want to have access, if, if you've been intrigued by my story and my 30 years of doing this, and you want to read some of the back issues and access some of the, some of the, uh, the, the newsletters that I've written over the years, my almost the whole library of everything I've done is available when you become a VIP member. So people can, uh, who are listening to your show can go to pwtorch.com slash go VIP. That's pwtorch.com slash go VIP. And I'll even do this uh, on the spot. I didn't plan to, but if anybody wants to get uh, try a VIP membership for $1, I'm not running a sale anywhere else right now, but if people want to get a 90% off, normally it's 10 bucks a month, but if they want to try a VIP membership for a buck, um, they can enter two-man power trip as a coupon code. Um, let's just make it power trip. That's shorter. I don't want to make people Yeah, power trip. But yeah, exactly. Power trip. And let me tell you this, and I took advantage of one of those deals that you did years ago, uh, similar deal. Uh, I went right to the archives because uh, I'd listen to all the audio and I would listen to all the shows, and when you, you did one of the specials, I jumped on it, and I'm telling you, I was listening to your interviews from the early 90s uh, on your radio show you had up in Minnesota. I was listening to some of the, uh, just some of the classic clips that you had, and to me, that is where I just completely nerd out, and when you can hear stuff that was going on in the moment <laughs> that you might not have access to anymore, 
you know, and hearing some of the stuff from, you know, 1991, 1992, all this stuff going on with the, uh, the steroid trial and, and, and the Ring Boy scandal, that, to me, I go right to that stuff, and I absolutely loved it. So we thank you so much for that, and hopefully we get a lot of people taking advantage of it because you literally will not be disappointed. So we appreciate that, Wade, and this has been a, a ton of fun. Thank you so much for taking the time tonight. I thank you very much. I just, as you were talking, created my coupon uh, code. That's how quick and easy it was. So um, it is. Uh, it is set. So yeah, we'd love. To, I'd love to uh, have some people who enjoyed this conversation try out a membership. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Wade. It. This is a long time coming. We really appreciate you taking the time. I'm glad we could finally make it happen. Let's do it again down the road. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.